please stand for the reading of God's word from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you were here the last few weeks, we have been examining a few dangers that exist in the celebration of Christmas every year. Now, if you weren't here, you may be thinking that I'm talking about Christmas trees and their dubious origins or certain traditions, and I actually mean none of that. What I mean, rather, are the more real and more subtle dangers that exist in the celebration of Christmas when it is not done by the Spirit and with intention. The first danger that we saw three weeks ago was the danger of celebrating the trappings of the season, but failing to spend any time or any, or, or any notice of anything special in Christ himself. This you could call the cultural trap. It is to be a part of a Christian culture in the West, or, or not in the West, but any Christian culture which celebrates the, the season of Christmas and we get caught up in the wonderful joys of snow and lights and trees and gifts, but we miss the point. Uh, culturally, you may have seen ad- admonitions against this, don't miss the reason for the season as it's so often quipped. Uh, but the problem is this, that in that we fail to see the darkness of what our sin is and our inability to do anything about our sin, and therefore, the uniqueness of Christ is missed entirely. We love the celebration. We may even attend special church services. We may even give gifts, but we miss the centrality of the point of all of those things. Just like the old covenant was given by by God to Israel to teach them about their need for Christ, Christmas is celebrated to remind us of things. It is the darkest time in the year on this hemisphere, and it was placed in, in that time for a reason. The church is saying something with the, the worldwide calendar and time that God is doing something unique in the person of Jesus Christ, bringing about light where there was darkness. We saw three weeks ago that unlike the presents that we all give to each other, the gift of Christ by the Father to the world is the only gift which we actually need. If we do not have that gift, we have nothing. Without the coming of Jesus, as Matthew teaches, we have no remission of sins. The next danger that we saw was a settling into a humdrum familiarity. What I mean by this is it half-hearted worship breeds a familiarity with the things of the faith such that nothing is special anymore. 
Perhaps you remember Christmas as a child and it was a wonderful, magical time, but now as you celebrate Christmas each year, it's lost its luster. The reason that this is, is because we've disconnected the preciousness of Christ at a uh, objective level, and maybe we've got that, but we've missed the subjective level. What do I mean by that? We analyze the season. We, we, we don't miss the reason for the season, but the reason for the season is kept in an abstract notion. Yes, Christ is precious for sin in general. We, have, we recognize the fact that there is a need for Christ, theoretically, but it is not my need for Christ. We saw this last week when, when we looked at the time where the woman comes to Jesus and she breaks this alabaster jar, a very expensive ointment, and lavishly pours it upon his feet and weeps over him and kisses him. We, we noted at that illustration that you do not kiss the feet of someone you do not highly esteem. You do not kiss the feet of anything less than your treasure. And the reason Christ is precious to this woman, as he says, is because she loves much because she has been forgiven much. In the, in the humdrum familiarity of celebrating Christmas, we recognize a need, but not our need. And therefore, Christmas just becomes yet another season. We go through the motions. We remember some facts of the gospel, but those facts do not move our souls. The reason that the Father is giving the Son as a sacrifice for sin is precious is because without that sacrifice, I can never know who God is. I can't be, I can't be known by God, and I cannot know him. And though we avoid those first two temptations, being trapped with the, the being caught up in the trappings of the season and being uh, settling into a, a familiarity and a uh, just mundane celebration, another temptation remains. This temptation is often, you might think of it as the Thomas Kincaid temptation. If you don't know who Thomas Kincaid is, he's the guy who, or the company of people who produce those wonderful picturesque cottages in the snow or, or the pastoral settings and paintings. It's, it's the sort of notion of everything in Christmas just being pretty and nice and meek and not understanding the deep significance of who we are coming to worship. As we see the shepherds and the magi arrive, we are caught up with the cuteness and the tenderness of baby Jesus, and we forget the significance of what's taking place before our eyes. In seeing the meekness and mildness of the Christ child, we may err by presuming him to be merely a sacrifice for sin, but not also God in the flesh, the king who we must lovingly obey. In this temptation, we love that Christ offers us salvation, but we do not wish for him to be our Lord. We see Christ as a gift to the world, but we do not see him as the ruler of the world. This is a persistent temptation in celebrating Christmas half-heartedly. And yet these two aspects, Christ's person and work, the, the work that he does in atoning for sin and his person, his reign, his rightful rulership, are directly connected in God's dealing with his people throughout the ages. As we're going to see in Micah's prophecy, Israel's sin 
which Christ comes to atone for, is chiefly this, the refusal of God's righteous reign. You see, we cannot divorce Christ's lordship from salvation. Salvation is we are being saved from, as we like to say in this church, we are being saved from being our own Lord. And understanding the history of the covenant people of God, we see it plain. It could be nothing other than this fact, that God is sending Jesus to fulfill his promises to be a righteous ruler, not just an atonement for sin. To attempt to divorce the cross of Christ from the crown of Christ is to miss the entire point of this season. Something which if you ever get a moment of reflection when you look at the pyramid for both the season of Advent and Lent, it is put there as a reason. The crown of Christ and the cross of Christ go together. These two aspects of Christ's work are what Micah is describing in his wonderful promise of a gracious work of God. Micah prophesies concerning the coming of a shepherd king, someone who is going to pay for sin, but also come to be the ruler of God's flock. To that end, I want to look at five ideas, four from Micah's passage, and then a fifth in understanding how we are to be the sheep of Christ's pasture. First, I want to look at Micah's anointing for rebuke, that Micah was not a self-directed prophet. He was not on a mission of righteousness, which he was his own commissioner, but rather that God bestowed his spirit upon Micah to rebuke God's people. Then I want to look at the context of Micah's letter, that as he's writing his prophecy, he inserts out of nowhere, seemingly, an amazing series of promises. Promises that the the sins of Israel do not justify or even tolerate. I want to look at the graciousness of God as Micah says that God is going to give his people up until this ruler comes. And I want to look at how that actually is not a problem. It may sound strange to our ears, but it was right for God to do that. Then I want to examine how Christ himself fulfills Micah's prophecy in his own life, death, and especially in his teachings as he explains to his people who he is as the shepherding ruler. And then finally, as I mentioned, I want to examine what it means for us as God's people to love the reign of the shepherd king. I want to start all the way at the beginning of the history of Micah's uh, prophecy. prophetic uh, ministry. Micah prophesied during a time of the final kings of Judah before the Syrian invasions take place. Uh, For those of you who are weak on your Old Testament history like I am, uh, we often miss the the point that the Babylonian captivity when they were taken away is not the only thing that God did. Before that, there was an invasion of the land. The Syrians came in and then God was demonstrating his wisdom in the Syrian king bites off a little bit more than he can chew, and he then attacks Babylon and is destroyed. Before the Babylonian captivity, however, it's important to note God sent, you can think of it like a little bit more than a shot across the bow. This was much more than a warning. He was saying, judgment is coming, you will not repent, but I'm going to try to do something. You see, God uses the greatest means 
uh, excuse me, the least means of judgment to procure the greatest amount of repentance. And in the invasion of the Syrians, we see this clearly. Micah is prophesying during the, the time at which the branch of David, which was withering, was ready to fall over. Of Jotham, we read in 2 Kings, Jotham, the first king of Micah's uh, ministry, that Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places are not removed or were not removed. Think about this. You're a king. You've been established by God. You've been anointed by the priests or a prophet. You are supposed to have a copy of the law written and placed near your throne so that you would rule by God's ways. And yet you know of all of these places in Israel which are still doing evil. It is not enough for you not to put those things to death. You must destroy the idols. Nevertheless, Jotham did not wish to do this. This is a picture of an unrighteous king. He personally didn't do any evil. He didn't add to the evil of the nation, but he left the nation where it was. The options are not just wicked king who leads us into idolatry. Another option is a, an apathetic king who doesn't care. That's what Jotham is there to show us. This is what it means. Jotham is a king who is willing for everybody else to just do what they want. He's not willing to be king. He's abdicated even as he reigns. In verse 37, it says that in those days, in the days of Jotham, the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. God started to send little invasions, just like when the Philistines would come on their raids. David rose up and put them to death. He defended the nation. Jotham, it appears, had no concern with these invasions. It's important for us to see that God's prophets, as Micah is about to, to prophesy great, grievous things against Israel, it's important for us to see that God's prophets do not merely rebuke his people. In very many cases, the prophets of God are like the mediator who will come after them. They embody a ministry that is pointing forward to Christ. Micah, it says in Micah 1.8, began to lament and to wail over the sin of Israel. You see, the prophet is not one who just rebukes or makes a judgment against the sins of God's people. He himself be begins to suffer under the sins of God's people. He laments and he wails. Micah sees a great evil of the rulers of Israel. In Micah 3, 1 through 3, Micah describes the rulers of Israel as barbaric carnivores who rip the flesh off of God's people. In fact, I decided against reading it this morning because I didn't think we could make it through the description. Here's the reason why Micah does that, is he wants to make plain God hates Israel's sin. Israel's sins are worse than the people who lived in the land before they did. They are offering up their children to Moloch, and that was what the people of, Pal of, of the Canaanites did before they came into the land. But here's the problem. Israel has the covenants of God. They've tasted of the mercy of God in the Exodus. They've been given means by which they could approach the one true God, and yet they are offering up their 
children to Moloch. They are, their kings are, ripping apart the poor and devouring them and profiting off of their illnesses and their, their destruction. This is how evil the sin of Israel was. Micah, however, is not just rebuking. He himself is suffering and he has not been sent of his own purpose. It wasn't Micah who raised himself up to be zealous for the Lord, but rather Micah says that he's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. In Micah 3.8, we read, But as for me, Micah, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. We often avoid these parts of the scripture in our daily readings or in our devotional readings, and yet it is a great act of God's grace. God did not want his people to be forever cast off. He wanted his people to come near. Therefore, he anoints Micah with the Holy Spirit so that he would be anointed or able to declare sins. It's an amazing thing, this task that Micah has been given, because it immediately puts him at odds with those who are of the flesh in Israel, and yet at the same time, he can do nothing to remove their sins. It is a grievous ministry that Micah and others, Elijah has a very similar ministry, Jeremiah especially. Wishing to restore his people, God is sending his messenger to bring them out of delusion. What the prophets do, they don't hyperbolize, they make sin look as it actually is. This is the problem of sin. Sin to us does not look like it is. We dismiss God's description of sin. It's just a little sin. It's just a pet idolatry. It's just a little injustice. This was just done because it was at a hard time in my life. No, God describes sin as the destruction of others and ourselves. And therefore, because he has great love for his people, he wants Micah to declare to them what their sin is so that they would be woken from their stupor and they would come to their senses and return to the God of Israel. Micah recounts the sins of God's people and then immediately, without a call to repentance, declares scandalous promises of mercy. In Micah chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, it says that Zion will be plowed as a field. I want you to imagine the city of Dayton, all of the bricks, all of the stones, all of the bridges, all of the structures, the metalworks. I want you to imagine the great effort that it would take to remove those and to turn it into farmland. Zion shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And then immediately, Micah declares a glorious promise of the latter days. It is an important fact of reading the Bible to understand that the chapter breaks are not supposed to be a pause. Normally, after immediately saying, Zion is going to be plowed over like a field, Micah then says, without skipping a beat, without saying a description of Israel's repentance, in Micah 4.1, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. What were the peoples doing at this time in Israel? They were coming in and raiding Israel. And Micah says, by the Holy Spirit, as he looks towards the day of Christ, there's going to come a day when God is going to restore this people. He's going to raise everything up out of the ruins, and he's going to make it praiseworthy. 
The nations are going to come and they're going to stream up to the house of God. That same God that we've been scorning, Israel, God's going to cause us to worship him in truth and the Gentiles will flood, not in war, they will flood in praise and they are going to come. This is the amazing anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what God's word is intended to do. God's word is a double-edged sword. It first comes in and calls sin what it is. In chapter three of Micah, we hear it's carnivory of human flesh. It's barbarism, it's evil, and then immediately God announces his promise. God's word lays us in the low, in the dust of our sin, and then raises us to the heights of heaven. We see the curse of God against sin and the blessings that are able to be procured in forgiveness. Coming to our reading, Micah then says in Micah 5, 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Having just shown the darkness of wicked kings in Jerusalem, God promises to bring forth a righteous ruler from this lowly city called Bethlehem. If you don't remember the geography, uh, Jerusalem is about six miles from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was a town in the tribe of Judah, so small, as Micah tells us, that it wasn't really worthy of being called even a clan. Uh, You had the tribes, and then you had regions in the tribes, you had clans, and then you had cities and towns. Bethlehem is like a small town that Uh, you might experience while driving around in Ohio. There's all these wonderful towns in Ohio where you are driving on a state route, it goes from 55 to 35, and you're then through the town. That is Bethlehem in a sense. That's a picture of what Bethlehem was. And God is contrasting these things. He's saying, Jerusalem as man's city is going to fall, and I'm going to bring someone forth for me from of old, and I'm going to do it from a place where no one was looking. If we remember, Bethlehem is called the city of David. And if you remember the calling of David, it was in the exact same manner, wasn't it? Samuel comes and is going to anoint one of Jesse's sons. And Jesse brings out all of his boys. He brings out the A-plus student. He brings out the sports hero. And then after six of these sons are brought forth, none of them are the right boy. God then tells Samuel to ask again. Surely you have another son. David was not only an outcast from his brothers, he was dismissed. It's, it's, think of it like this. When you're a parent, you don't usually forget the names of your children. But at, in this case, Jesse didn't even think it was worthy. It was so impossible that David could be the king that Jesse didn't even present him. That's how dismissed David was. That's how lowly David was. That's how rejectable David was. The nation chose Saul, even as Samuel also first passed over David. But David was the rightful king. And in David's ministry, God, by his grace, gave great relief to the people. In fact, it is the case that David was the one who pushed out the boundaries of Israel the furthest. No other king had a greater amount of peace and safety in his reign. 
God is going to do the exact same thing from the city of David as what he did in the raising up of King David. God emphasizes through Micah that this ruler who's going to come forth is both for God, he's a ruler for God, and he's from of old. For those of you who are systematic theologians or people who love to meditate on the nature of the Christ, these are powerful and precious words. This ruler is going to rule on God's behalf. He's a ruler for me, as God says. He's going to rule according to God's ways. None of the other kings would rule according to God's ways. Remember, they were supposed to have a copy of the law by them so that they could decide disputes according to God's rulership or God's wisdom. And in so doing, they would be a vice regent or a king underneath the kingship of God. God says that this ruler who comes up from this obscure town is going to be for him. He's going to rule on God's behalf. That is to say, his coming forth is not only by God's design, but it's also according to God's will. God isn't just going to raise up this ruler like he's arisen other rulers. No, this ruler will be everything that God desired when he established a king in Israel. Not only that, many prophets long ago have foretold him. His rulership is from of old. Not only is his rulership from of old, his coming forth is from of old. The ruler himself is of old. That is, in the person of Jesus Christ, we know that this ruler who came forth is himself the ageless and eternal God who had never had a beginning, but was forever with the Father. Throughout covenant history, God's people experienced a cycle of deliverance, blessing, sin, and then repentance. God called his people at first to himself by delivering them from their enemies. If you remember the time of Exodus, God delivers Israel out of the Exodus by his own power and his own mercy, wanting to teach them about his nature. Being a gracious God, God then poured extravagant blessings upon his people. When Israel finally enters into the land, the blessings overwhelm them. God is not only a powerful God and a merciful God pulling his people out. He's not only a gracious God, he also is a patient God. As the people became complacent in their gifts, they then went off and served other gods. They forgot who Yahweh was. They dismissed what he had done in the past. God graciously allowed them to be tested and to turn aside to other gods for this purpose, that they would know their sin for what it is and that they would know their need for him to procure an everlasting change or a permanent change of who they were as his people. When God's people had suffered from a time, God then softened their hearts, caused them to cry out to him, and then sent another deliverer, prophet, or judge. If you remember God's covenant history as it's encapsulated in the Old Testament, this cycle happens over and over and over again. But this cycle of judgment, uh, sin, judgment, and repentance has now been proved to rep- by repetition. There is a sort of argument in in. Uh, classical, you know, logic and, and proving things called the argument by ad nauseum. It's, it's an argument 
by which we say that it will never be anything other than this because we've repeated the experiment enough times that it it doesn't need to be done again. And God himself was never in need of convincing whether his people would believe or not. As Jesus himself says in the Gospel of John, he knew what was in every man. God knows his people will not stay near to him. Why did he allow this cycle to take place? To teach his people that. You see, as soon as God puts trials before his people, they constantly are boasting in their ability to do the law and their ability to worship God in truth and in purity. But now, at the time of Micah, the people of Israel know. They know that they will never stay close to the Lord. And therefore, Micah says that God is going to go ahead and give them up until the ruler comes. Why is this grace? We read in verse 3, Therefore he, God, shall give them up, Israel, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. It's a very perplexing passage, unless we understand this. God was unwilling to let his people remain in the delusion that they could keep the law and that they could come to God on their own and that they could remain faithful even as they are turning to other gods. God here announces that he's no longer going to speak in any way that could be missed Israel has finally learned fully that unless they are radically changed in their constitution, in their solical makeup, they can never obey God's laws, nor love his ways, nor love him. And we know that this is the case from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we read that long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We know that Micah is writing of Jesus Christ. This ruler who came forth, came forth from the city of Bethlehem, and he came forth from the one who was in labor. As it's recorded in Matthew's gospel, which we'll look at tomorrow night, when the wise men came to pay homage to this ruler, Herod's scribes actually quoted Micah 5.2, saying that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. The irony of this, however, is that Herod is a false king by birth. And even though he isn't from their lineage, he looks exactly like, he looks like the kings of Judah. He does the same things that they do. In a jealous rage, Herod slaughtered all of the male children of Judea under two years of age. The point is this, that that is the fruit of the kingdom of man. And God is raising up a ruler who will take all authority. When Christ appears, according to Micah 5.3, there will be a great multitude of righteous brothers to come and to replace the false shepherds of Israel. If there's one constant theme in all of the prophets, it is that the kings and the priests of Israel have gone astray and they have oppressed God's people. And Micah prophesies that when this ruler comes, he's not just going to be one against the world. No, he's going to come, be the ruler, and all of his righteous brothers will return. There's going to be a flood in of righteous brothers. The New Testament describes these in the book of Hebrews as the children of God, the brothers that are with the Messiah. But it's not just these 
brothers as a whole, but chiefly the apostles who preach his word. God sent the apostles to restore his people. We, like the people of the first century, must listen to these apostles because they are spokesmen of this ruler. And the reign of this ruler is going to be totally glorious. In Micah 5, verse 4, we see all of the aspects of the ministry of Christ as he reigns in his rulership. Micah says, And he, the ruler, shall stand and shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they, the flock, shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Christ's shepherding, therefore, as Micah says, is sure, it is perfect, and it is glorious. The first aspect of Christ's shepherding as being sure is this, that the shepherd of God's people, Christ who comes, is going to stand. He's not going to reign for a time and die like all the kings of old. He's not going to institute mild reforms and then slip back into apostasy. No, this shepherd king is going to stand and he will not be moved. He's not going to grow tired in his watching over the flock. He's not going to be weary and need to take a break. No, this shepherd is going to take his place and he's going to remain. Not only will his reign be sure, it will be perfect. Christ shepherds his flock in which there are never any goats. Now to be sure, we do not see his flock like he sees his flock. He knows his sheep by name. If he knows you by name, you are no goat at all, but rather you are his tender flock. Christ is going to shepherd this flock by the power of the Spirit on God's behalf and for God's glory. His reign is sure. His reign is perfect. He knows each sheep by name, as he says in John 10, 3 through 5. He calls to them and he guards their coming in and their going out. There is not a sheep who escapes the eye of this perfect shepherd that Micah talks about. In John 21, 15 through 17, we hear Jesus give a charge to the restored Peter for one chief aim. It is this, that he would feed the sheep. Christ not only feeds the sheep by giving them his word and calling to them and they know his voice, he also gives them good under shepherds, not like the under shepherds of Jeremiah's day and of Micah's day. No, righteous shepherds who are truly commissioned by God, ministering God's grace to God's people. Not only does Christ give them under shepherds and know them by name, but his shepherding is perfect in that he never makes a mistake. Jesus says in John 28 that no one can snatch the sheep out of his hand. Think about that for a second. Not even Satan can snatch a sheep out of God's hand. The father has given the sheep to the son. The son in his shepherding is perfect and glorious and never makes a mistake. And he does not allow one of them to be taken away. We hear about this in the parable of the good shepherd, don't we? That the 99 who are in the pen, when the one is missing, he goes and he leaves. And this is a sort of shepherd when he goes to find the one, he doesn't leave the 99 behind. That's where the parable breaks down, doesn't it? 
The point is that Christ's shepherding is not only sure, it's not only perfect, but it is glorious. As their true shepherd, Christ not only does these things in some abstract way, but as the incarnate shepherd, he does it in a chief way. In John 10, 10 and 11, we hear that Christ is going to shepherd his people by laying down his life. That as the wolf is coming against the flock, he steps between the wolf and the flock, and he puts himself in the danger. He is a true shepherd, not just a mystical shepherd. And that is what we see in the incarnation. He is glorious in John's gospel, chiefly when he goes to the cross. His shepherding is glorious because he does it at a cost to his own life, testifying of his obedience to the Father and the worth of the flock. Seeing how great a shepherd we have in Christ, we must therefore remember the aim of his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. That is our sanctification. Now this may seem like we're far afield from the purpose of Advent or the purpose of Christmas, but brothers and sisters, it is not. This is the chief aim of Christ's coming. In 1 Peter 2, we read, he himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Though in his coming, the Christ child appears to be meek and mild, he is the only king and Lord. I want you to think about what we see when we imagine what took place in that manger. This is a small baby. Babies, if you don't know, do not, uh, they don't speak anything intelligible. They, they just make noise. Uh, those noises are often not pleasant. But I want you to think about this. This is the eternal God who's taken on flesh. I want you to imagine that this, that as he entered the womb, the Christ who made man became a man. It says in, first, in John chapter 1 that, that outside of the word of God, Christ, nothing has come into being which has come into being. What that means is that Christ himself was not just mystically present in the creation, but rather he was the agent through whom the Father and the Spirit worked in the creation. That is, the Father and the Spirit and the Son were co-partners in the singular work of creation. So he who made and fashioned man became a man. In Philippians 2, we hear that the one who was in glorious splendor, celebrated by angels, seen by the prophets of old, emptied himself of his glory by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When we see in Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3, the man who is sitting on the throne, who has fire, and lightning around his throne. He then comes and is there in that manger. In Hebrews 1, chapter 3, while he sleeps in the manger, we learn from Hebrews that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the deep mystery of what we celebrate in Christmas. As he took on flesh, he is the image of the invisible God. He who was the word of God, or is the word of God, rather, learned how to speak. Do you see the amazing mysteries and the paradoxes of, of what it is that he accomplishes in his coming? He isn't just presenting God to us. No, he is God in the flesh, and he's doing amazing things. 
Job 26, 14 says this, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. In the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, the writer Phillips Brooks captured the purpose of our sermon today in this final stanza. He said, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. You see, that is the point that I'm aiming at. We can miss Christ by celebrating the trappings of of Christmas. We can miss Christ by just having a vague notion of the purpose of Christmas. But we can also miss Christ in another way that we presume because of the tender, meek, and mild imagery of the manger that we mistakenly presume upon holy ground. That's God lying there in that manger. That's the God who not only came to atone for sin, but to be your shepherd. The shepherd come to the one who should be shepherding them. That's the point that I'm trying to make this morning. So as we remember this incarnation of Jesus Christ tomorrow and throughout the next few days, my aim and charge to you is this. Give yourself to live as his true sheep. Don't mistake the beauty and the purity of what you see in the manger and think that it is just meekness and mildness that Christ comes. No, he comes to cast out our sin and to procure a sanctification in us. We ought to live so that he would reign in and through our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the precious gift who, without which we could have no atonement, we could have no fellowship with you. But Lord, we ask that we would not just see Christ as payment for our sins, but that he is the fulfillment of all that you've purposed in reigning and in ruling over your people. We pray that he would be our shepherd, that he would not just restore our souls, but that we would love his guidance and his staff and his rod as they show us how to walk and where to eat. We pray that we would be pure sheep, that we would really be a part of his flock and that just as we are part of his flock, that that would be evidenced through our lives and how we live to your praise and to your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.